0: at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Life can get sweaty sometimes. Carpe keeps you dry. Carpe has not only created a revolutionary underarm antiperspirant, a lotion that outperforms every major antiperspirant on the market in a pit to pit test, but Carpe also has a full line of sweat care for everywhere. Founded by two guys who had sweaty palms their whole lives, Carpe was created with dermatologists and people actually diagnosed as excessive sweaters. Whether you want to avoid a sweaty face, underarm stains, smelly feet, or below the belt sweat, Carpe has a solution for you. Carpe has a 60 day, full, no questions asked, money back guarantee. Find the full line at mycarpe.com. That's M-Y-C-A-R-P-E ecom.
1: We're here with Lynn Liao Butler, author of The Tiger Mom's Tale and The Red Thread of Fate, which will be coming out February 8th. First thing I'd really like to talk about is your debut, The Tiger Mom's Tale, which came out in July of 2021 And I know that it did very well. Uh, I remember seeing it many places, hearing about it repeatedly. What is that experience like as a debut author to have a fairly spectacular debut? I'm glad you say that because I didn't think it was that spectacular,
0: (laughs) actually.
2: (laughs) So I guess everything is subjective, just like publishing, right? (laughs) I think my publicity and marketing team, I'm with Berkeley, they did an amazing job. You're right. The book was everywhere. It it still is kind of. I was just traveling and saw in airports everywhere. So they did a great job getting the book out. I don't know about sales per se, Mm -hmm. but um, (laughs) it did get Buzz. I had to wait two years from the time that it sold for it to come out because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it was just anticlimatical by the time it came out.
1: Um, definitely an exciting time. Absolutely. I don't know about sales, but that's something that the average reader and the average listener may not know is that we don't always have a good handle on how well our own books are actually performing. Visibility <laughs> really can feel like one of the only measurements of success, my experience, like being inside of publishing. So we talk about buzz a lot in the industry. And I can say that inside of the publishing industry, this book had really big buzz. Like I've been seeing this cover for two years. I don't know, there is some frustration there, isn't there? Because you don't always know how well you are or are not actually doing
2: yeah. And then the different places that you can check are always different. Like they're never the same numbers and then the numbers that your publisher has. So yeah, you never really know and nobody really gives you the full answer, I guess, until you get your first uh, royalty statement or something, but that hasn't happened yet for me. So,
1: um, mm-hmm. yes, you know, very so, true. Very and once you do get your royalty statement, even then those numbers are six months old by the time you get it. Right. Exactly.
2: So it's good to hear you say that there was buzz because I think they did create a lot of buzz for it. And I think one of the reasons probably is because we waited this long to get the book. So
1: of course, like you said, COVID played a role in your release and in the timing. And there was a delay for you. COVID has been hard on everyone in so many different ways. So, I mean, I talk about my experiences and how my life changed because of it, but in the large picture, As someone who is self-employed and worked from home already, I wasn't impacted greatly. But debut authors in that late 2019, 2020 period, and then in the first like probably six to seven months, if not all of 2021, definitely were impacted. I remember thinking, as an author that has already had like 10 books out when COVID hit, Thank God I'm not a debut. I can't imagine. (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about that experience of debuting during the pandemic? So back
2: in December of 2019, a group of us, the 2020 debuts, met up for holiday drinks and you know dinner. And we were all celebrating like our debut year is about to start. We're so excited. We're gonna go to each other's debuts um, because we were all in New York City. And then we went to like two and then the pandemic hit and everything shut down. And I just felt so bad for my friends that debuted in March, April, May of 2020, like the whole 2020, everything that they planned in-person events, everything was canceled. Um, And then my book got pushed back into 2021, early 2021, and they got pushed back even more into summer. And, you know, looking back, it was hard to wait that long But at the same time, just watching the 2020s coming out and having to adjust to virtual events and just basically seeing their dreams for what they wanted on their debut day, not happening. I did end up in July of 2021. I was able to have an outdoor in-person launch event as well as the virtual. So it was better for me, I guess. So in a way, it kind of worked out, I think, better for me. But it was a very hard time to debut, like no doubt about it. And sales kind of reflected that because a lot of the events got canceled. You weren't able to go to and launch your book and
1: market it. So it's been tough. Not only do you have the issue of having to cancel in-person events and anything that your publisher had planned for you, but also promotions and everything that right. you would been hoping to kind of make a wave with as the debut author. Now, suddenly, so many of our tools have been taken away from you and there were tools that you hadn't really had a chance to even adjust to holding them in your hands yet and now you don't even have them
2: even something simple as just going to a bookstore and seeing your book like a lot of them didn't get to see it until I think 2021
1: <laughs> yeah and that's super impactful i would imagine that if there are people who have been financially impacted And they want to buy a book, they're more than likely going to rely on their old favorites and people that they know, authors that they know, rather than take a chance and buy a book by a debut author. Because again, if you're coming out, if you're debuting with a hardcover, those are going to be expensive and you don't have all of the purchasing options. I know that you said you haven't had a royalty statement yet. I'm interested once I have all the data to see if audiobooks or ebook sales have gone up if people are not able to go to a bookstore anymore, if they're going to go to the ebook. My sales have always been very solidly on the physical book side.
2: I don't I have no idea. You're right. That'd be very interesting to see once
1: you, you know, get an idea. Beyond publishing, talking about the writing experience and what it was like to write. You have been a professional ballet and a modern dancer. You're still a personal trainer, a fitness instructor, a yoga instructor. You have a very, very active uh, physical life. So what made you decide, I think I want to try writing? (laughs)
2: So I've always been an avid reader. We moved here to the States when I was seven from Taiwan. And one of the ways my mom helped us to read was to go to the library and get books. And from the moment I got my first book, I was hooked. So I read all the time and I still read all the time. The best thing in my life is having a good meal and reading. Like, I don't want to talk to but I just want to read. And so I lived in New York City for many years, like over a decade. And, you know, I was dancing professionally and when I moved out of the city after I got married, I was only in the suburbs, but my friends in the city called it the country and they yeah. wanted to know what I was doing in the country. I'm like, I'm not in the country. I'm in the suburbs. So I started a blog just to keep them updated on what I was doing. Just, you know, like stories about my life. People just started saying like how funny they were and what a great writer it was. I was like, I've never taken a writing course before or any writing workshop I just decided, I woke up on January 1st, 2015 and decided I'm going to write a book. And I wrote a book. <laughs> awesome. And it was a very bad book. I wrote it in six months and then I started querying it in June of 2015 without a single person having read it. And then I started Googling how to you know, find an agent when I realized I was doing everything wrong. So I joined critique groups and got critique partners, beta readers. I just decided one day I was going to write a book.
1: I think that's awesome because it's very similar (laughs) to my own experience. I always wanted to be a writer. I knew that's what I wanted to do, but I also Uh was very dedicated to being practical. I'm a farmer's daughter and uh, not from a long line of writers. That's not what we do. We are farmers. I knew that I had to have a job, right? I had to have a real job. I had to be able to pay the bills. So I never took any steps like you're saying towards making that a real option. I didn't take classes. I never had any sort of writer's group that I attended. I just read a lot. And I really do think that that is the key. People ask me all the time, uh, if you could give any advice to writers, what would you give? And it's very simple, just read.
2: Right, exactly. I mean, that's basically how I learned how to write a book was just reading all my favorite authors and then kind of analyzing like, okay, how do they introduce you know the characters where's the climax if it's a thriller where do they start giving hints i basically just study my favorite books and that's how i learned to write a book so i don't know anything about the three act structure or save the cat like i've never read any of that basically because i read so much and across so many genres that i kind of picked up how to write a book from them
1: verbatim this was my experience so my first book came out and i had a friend that i had met through writers groups that was an adult author and she sent me a message on facebook or she said you could teach a seminar on three-act structure and i texted (laughs) her back and i was like that's cool what's three-act structure right exactly
2: Exactly. Somebody said that to me too. I had another uh, writer friend was telling me, oh, um, you did this and this and something second act. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about.
1: Yes. (laughs) I love it. I love it that it is a craft that you really can just um, absorb, teach yourself. So I'm curious, since you are also a professional in a very, very different arena. How did you then come to dancing? I'm sure that it was a different route. Like we're talking classes from a very young age.
2: Right. I was a pianist and on that route where my mom like entered me in all these contests and I was winning them all. And like, you know, I played all through college. And then one day I was auditioning for something and I froze like in the middle of a classical piece. I can't even remember what it was, but I forgot. And I realized that, When you're playing classical piano and you freeze, there's no way out of it. You can't fake your way through. You can't improvise. And that day I decided I'm not doing this anymore. I decided I was going to focus on dance. Um, I've always danced from also a young age, but not seriously. And I decided I was going to be a dancer because if you freeze on stage, you can just make something up. Mm -hmm. Nobody will know. My mom said, you know, typical Asian parents, they wanted me to get a real job that pays well. And my mom said, though, okay, we'll give you two years after college. We'll help support you. If you don't make it as a dancer in New York City, then you have to get a real job. I was lucky. I did get cast in a um, bunch of shows and ballet companies and modern dance companies. And I did that. And while I was doing that, I started training people because I needed a job that paid money but was flexible. And I tried waitressing, but you're on your feet. You're dancing eight hours a day, and then you're on your feet six, seven more hours. It was just too much. And since I knew so much about the body, I got my certification. And then from there, I owned a gym in the city, became a fitness instructor, and then a yoga instructor. And it's a really great balance to writing, I find, because I can get up, go teach a class, torture people, yell at them, or ohm and relax them. And then I come back, my head is cleared, because I've done something physical and makes it such a great balance from writing for me.
1: I also played piano. <laughs> <laughs> You have a lot in common. Um, I played piano from a very, very young age, and you are right, boy, when you lose it, it's gone. Um, it's, yeah there's no there's no coming back. It's like <laughs> no, you can't find it again. You don't know where you were. and you're just sitting there staring at this machine that has eighty eight buttons on it, and you're just like, <laughs>
0: Hmm. And I, I mean
1: I, I was lucky it was an audition and not a concert.
2: And I think that was when I, I just stood up and I said to them, I'm done. And they're like, Well, you can start
1: over if you want to start again. I was like, I'm done. And I yeah. walked off. I was like- yeah. There's nothing more intense. But as someone that did competitions and recitals and concerts, those competitions, there is nothing like it. I am from the country. Like there's nothing out <laughs> here except corn and deer. And we <laughs> would go to a college campus. To me, you know, it seemed like the biggest city in the world. And you walk into a room and it's you and a panel of judges and okay. a piano. And a piano. Exactly. And that's it. And you sit down and and you better get it freaking right. Because it's on you and only you and no one is coming to save you. <laughs> like there's right. that's it. Okay and it's classical so everybody knows exactly what it's supposed
2: to sound like so if you make a mistake or you make something up they know so oh
1: yeah no there's no getting away from it and in the some of the some of the competitions that I did you didn't have your music and right. they had they, their, they their music it. in front of them so right. you better deliver i got out of it earlier i was in high school i was getting older and i wanted to be focusing more on my athleticism When you play piano that seriously, it's like I would practice three, four hours a day. Right, right. Exactly. there is no more doing that. But I do think it was so fundamental to my development, even as a small child, to be like, okay, this is on me and only me. No one is helping me and I have to do this on my own. And it's terrifying.
2: But yeah. it also, I think, made us, I think, prepared for the publishing world a little bit more than maybe other people. I also find that my dancing was, because you'd go to cattle calls in New York City where there's like hundreds of girls all trying out for one spot and they just go down the line and say, no, you're you're too tall, you're too fat, you're too mm-hmm. Asian, you're too, you know, white, you're too black or you're too brown. And they just like, without even like watching or, or like, you can't dance, you know, you suck. <laughs> and, and it's uh. just such a, you know, they call it a cattle call for a reason that I think it helped me build up that thick skin for rejections when it comes to the publishing world.
1: You absolutely must have a thick skin. And you were already operating inside of the entertainment industry where it will kill you if you right. aren't ready. And same
2: with publishing. I know I talk to um, a lot of new authors. They're like, "Ooh, I, I have to show my work to someone. I don't want to show them. I'm like, well, that's the whole point of writing a book is that readers are going to review them. And they're most of the time Everybody gets ripped apart in some way. No matter how good your book is, somebody's going to hate it. And if you're not ready to show it to the world, then maybe you're not ready for the publishing
1: world. <laughs> so, absolutely. And that's something that I tell people all of the time is that the rejection never stops. You right. may be accepted by an agent and then a publisher, and then you get published. And now you have however many people are in the world, possibilities of rejection. So many things I think that tie into the ability to put yourself on the line. Uh, you know, we might be behind a laptop, but those those darts still hurt.
2: People say, don't read your reviews. I did read them up until, I guess, like right after publishing because then there was just too many. Like I didn't want to keep up with it anymore. I actually started doing something on my Instagram that I got the idea from, I don't know if you heard of Sally Hepworth. She's in uh, like a domestic thriller. I found her because I saw her video on Instagram where she does these things called One Star Fridays Well, she'll read them out. She's completely respects whoever rates it. She's just saying this is what they say, kind of relive it, share it with the audience. And then it's out, it's out there. So I started doing them and it's actually very freeing because, you know, you get comments like, this is the worst book I have ever read. And then it just kind of makes you laugh. Like, oh my God, somebody thinks my book is the worst book they have ever read. Not making fun of the reviewer. I completely respect them for their opinion, just that the fact that they can even write that. Um, And then I just share it. And, you know, people are trying to defend me. I'm like, no, it's okay. I'm okay. It's really fine.
1: I really like that. I think that's really cool. I too read my reviews when I was first published. Um, (laughs) Where I land on reviews is that, you know, good reviews just kind of make you pat yourself on the back and, not necessarily continue to push or grow or move forward as a writer and bad reviews just make you feel shitty. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) Unless you can laugh at them, then it's, you know, then it's okay. I really like that. I mean, you know, I'm reading these reviews and they're like, they're like, it's completely unbelievable. And then like, you know, you
1: kind of comment, it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's a novel, you know? (laughs) so Right. Well, and something, too, that I have had the experience of, and I talked about this with another guest that I had on recently, is that there are some things that perhaps may be unbelievable, but they're in service of the plot. Like you're saying, it is fiction. So for example, I read a thriller that was set at a school very recently and it was this very well-reviewed book and everyone loved it and thought it was great. It wasn't a YA, it was about the adult staff and mm-hmm. I was reading it and getting irritated because I worked in a school for 14 years and so many things about how a school functions and uh, interactions between staff and students are managed and even interactions right, right. between staff and staff No, like, no, no, that would never happen. No, that is wrong, you know, and like getting vaguely upset about it and then having to go, it doesn't matter because no one wants to read a book about the daily operation of a school. It is effing boring, right? (laughs) Yes, but at the same time, I do as a
2: writer try to get, like, if I'm writing about school, I'll try to get those details you know, as correct as possible. I just set a book in Kauai and we went at the, this is the best thing we ever did in the pandemic. We went to Kauai and lived there for two months earlier this year because we knew we were going to be in lockdown again in um, New York. And I was like, if you want to be locked down, we might as well just do it in Hawaii. Sure. So, you know, we went there and I did research. So I do try to get the details of certain things. Like um, I had, I needed a rescue mission. Um, you know, somebody falls into a river. I realized I got the details of that completely wrong. So if I had published it that way and somebody read it that knows about Kauai, they're going to be like, that's not right.
1: <laughs> I mean, I totally agree. I do the best that I absolutely can to make sure that it is as accurate as it can be. But at the same time... So for example, you're talking about a rescue mission where someone is falling into the water. You don't have to convince a search and rescue operation person that you know what you're talking about. Because let's just take a stab. People that work in search and rescue for their professional living, let's just pretend that's 0.05% of the population. How many of those 005 are even readers and then... How many of that percentage is actually going to pick up your book? You're not writing it for the professionals to read it and go, damn, she got that right. Like you're right. for <laughs> the average reader to believe that you know what you're talking about. Right, exactly. But at the same time, you do everything that you can to make sure it's right because... I mean, just for me, it comes down to not being lazy. There will be scenes in a book where a body has been found. The coroner doesn't show up first and take the body like no one has shown up and taken pictures. You need to try a little harder. If I, right. as someone that is not in that profession, is looking at it going, I am like 99% sure that's not right. Exactly. You want to get at least the basics
2: right so that average people read it. They aren't going to be like, that's not Right. Um, But I love researching for books and I always tell people like I try to set books where I wanted to go travel to Mm -hmm. and then I'll set a book there and then go and do research and now it becomes a business trip. So
1: yeah, that's what I did. (laughs) Very, very smart. I'm actually going to Hawaii next week. Friends from college, a couple of us got divorced right around the same time and we planned a trip to get our funk out and it got canceled because of COVID and and we just ended up Yeah, it was terrible. So we ended up being able to put it back together, and next week I'm we going to Hawaii. And- I
2: actually just got back from Hawaii last week. I was going to the Kauai Writers Conference, and then the minute I booked everything, it got canceled. But then my agent sold the book that I set in Kauai, so I just just decided to go and you know just hang out and get the culture and everything again. So it was it was great. You're gonna That's have a great wonderful.
1: time. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Um, It's amazing to me how things have opened up for us um, as authors, you have the ability to go and do this research that adds like a whole layer like don't get me wrong everything about it is going to be more visceral because you have been there and you know. But um, I remember when I was writing my second book, which takes place across like apocalyptic version of most of the United States. At some point they end up in Nebraska and I'm like, okay, what the hell does Nebraska look like? They're going to be (laughs) in Nebraska for like one chapter. So am I going to fly to Nebraska? Probably not. I have Google Maps and I can take my little person and drop him down for the 360 view and look around and be like, this is what Nebraska looks like. Okay, I got it. That, that's a great
2: thing about the internet now you can google anything but what you know my book is actually s- completely set there and yeah. the stuff that happens it happens at a specific location during a cer- certain kind of uh, thunderstorm and stuff so that it was great to be there but um i have a book that i'm working on that's part of his set in oklahoma and i'm like yeah i probably won't fly to oklahoma i'll do research on it right. and you know ask people who have lived there because it's not a big part of it, but if it was, I probably would. If it got sold,
1: yeah, so, absolutely. I, mean, I love to travel, so <laughs> I do too. I do too, and it's been hard to not be able to do that lately. So, yeah. um, and I will say, actually, it is interesting mm-hmm. the things that you pick up on when you are in a space physically, like you're there. When I was in Oklahoma. You know, something that I probably never would have seen in pictures or had someone talk about, but what my takeaway of it was, and I didn't even consider this, they grow a lot of cotton in Oklahoma. (laughs) And I didn't know that. And when they harvest it and there's wind, there's literally just cotton everywhere. And it's blowing around. And there's little like spider webs of cotton sticking in all of the trees. And it's like accumulating in the ditches. And it's just nothing I have ever seen before in my life. It's like a weird little environmental miracle to me. And they're just like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's just cotton to them. That's so funny. Wow. They think nothing of it. But it was like, if I were going to write a book about Oklahoma, for me, like my takeaway is that there's just cotton everywhere, you know? All
2: right. I'm going to have to file that away for, you know, for future reference.
1: Like I said, I worked in a school and whenever we have an international student that has never seen snow before and it starts snowing, class just stops and everybody gets to go outside so that (laughs) this individual gets to experience snow that's what the cotton was like for me.
2: Every different area, you know, has their own little thing that it's very interesting. And that's also why I love to read books because getting transported to these places and like you might not ever go to. So now I learned something about Oklahoma that's going to stick with me.
1: See, So let's talk really quick about the book that you have coming out in February, Red Thread of Fate, which has a gorgeous cover. I just discovered it and it's pretty amazing. It's actually about
2: kind of family that is not through blood. So a woman named Tam and her husband are about to adopt a little boy from an orphanage in China. And then the husband and his estranged cousin are killed in a freak accident. And she suddenly left the guardian of the cousin's five year old daughter, as well as trying to decide she's going to complete the adoption. And it kind of delves into the adoption process from China and the special bond that the caretakers, the nannies that work in the orphanages have with the children. It's inspired by my husband and my journey when we adopt our little boy. It's not our story. It's completely different. But the journey itself was inspired by what we went through. And it's just my way of just kind of showing how like families can, you know, you're tied together by this red thread. It could be by blood. It could be through adoption or whether it's through a love interest or mother, daughter, son, how people are just tied together. I'm very excited about this book.
1: I, people use the phrase like found family. Right. But I feel like it can go, I'm going to use the phrase deeper than that, but yes. also even a wider net. Like I know as someone that grew up in a really small area, very, very tiny community, and then worked in the school that I attended as a student, I would have students that were, you know, the children of my classmates. And even if they were classmates that I had not seen in, you know, 15, 20 years, I would look at that student and number one, I immediately know it's their child. But I also have like this affinity for that person, simply because I had a relationship with her parent.
2: Exactly. That's and that was the point of this book that, you know, you have these threads or things that connect you to other people. And a lot of times it, you know, it's maybe it's not family, family, but you're just drawn to someone for some reason and how you're all just connected by fate somehow. I love this book because I I just feel like it gets deeper into a subject that a lot of people don't talk about. And there's also, you know, family secrets, and I think my editor was the one that said it was surprisingly thrilling. And one of the early reviews I got was like, "Yeah, there's like elements of suspense and thriller in there," and I didn't realize I did that. So it's it's kind of interesting how people perceived it. Yeah. It's
1: nice when you achieve something you didn't mean to, right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. So it, it it was very, it was funny that more than one person said that. I was like, oh, okay. And well, I remember when I was querying this book, um, one of the agent has said to me, you wrote a really fast paced thriller. And I'm going, what are you talking about? I didn't write a thriller. <laughs> <laughs> I, wrote contemporary. I was like, I, it's more women's fiction. And now that my editor said, I was like, oh, I guess there is elements of thriller-ish in there.
1: <laughs> it's really funny because it's like, I've had the experience of having my books read by um, college classes. And I'll go in and Ooh. I'll speak to them and occasionally they'll be like, Well, I loved how you used the elements of the Furies in this and you wove in all of this. And I'm like, I, I really just- did. <laughs> <laughs> I did, really? Oh good. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm always just like I would love to just nod sagely and be like, yes, I'm yes. so glad you picked up on that. And I'm just like, yes, I meant to do that. <laughs> yeah, I am really honest. I'm just like, it is really cool that you think I'm that smart.
2: <laughs> like they say, once you write the book, and it's out there, it becomes the reader's book and how they want to interpret it. You know, so <laughs> totally, totally,
1: totally agreed with that. Last thing, why don't you let listeners know where they can find you online and where they can buy your books?
2: I made it easy. It's you can just find me anywhere at Lynn Leal Butler, um, just all three names together. On Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, it's all the same. My website is com, <laughs> So I, I just made it easy for everybody. And my books are basically sold anywhere you can buy books, online, and bookstores. They're in a lot of airports right now. So like I said, from Hawaii and I laid over in uh, LAX. And I found my book in five different kiosks at nice. JFK uh, airport. And I was just literally running through the airport, taking pictures of myself of the book. They must've been like, what is this woman doing? <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, so it's really exciting.
1: I read a story one time um, about Neil Gaiman moving through an airport. I don't remember where he was, but he stopped and there was, I think it was this Norse mythology book. And he uh-huh. just like a stealth signed to the copies. And then he went, yeah. and he was like sitting at his gate and he tweeted, you know, hey, I signed all the copies at this location, this uh, wing of the airport. And like people started running. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, just... I'm not big enough for that yet. So, <laughs> Oh, God, no, me neither. But he was just like, he was like, oh, God, like, is there some sort of like red alert terror right. alarm? It's like, no, <laughs> you caused this. It was your tweet. <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs>